Welcome to Pensive Series. Josh Burson founded Burson in 2001 to provide research and advisory services focused on corporate learning. I met up with him at Singularity University's Global Summit, and I had a chance to talk to him about various things ranging from how he started the company, what he's doing on a daily basis, and all the things that he's learned, and uh, he was able to share his expertise on corporate learning and talent. Okay, so we'll start with a simple question. Um, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in... I was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, and grew up in California. And which one did you like better? California is far better. Yeah? <laughs> much more fun, much more better weather. Did you have a formative experience? Growing up? Yeah. Thousands of them. <laughs> is there anything that stood out? Um, I would say it start, I, I, my experience as a child, and if I think about where my career is today from that standpoint, probably started... My formative experience was having a paper route when I was in grade school, and from there I had a whole series of jobs and other things I did with my time, and somehow developed a work ethic that got me to this. <laughs> did you develop any other uh, habits or things? That, well, like, I've always been um, interested in technology and math. I'm a math person. I studied engineering in college, so I'm sort of a problem solver, information-seeking kind of personality. and. Little by little, and I went. In, I worked in um, sales and business development and technology and product management and marketing. And then later in life, realized that I actually wanted to be sort of a researcher and an analyst. And that's how I ended up doing this. So that's kind of how it all. Evolved. How did that? How did that transition happen? Well, it was actually an accident. I was working for a startup. We had started. A, I worked in a startup that we sold to another company, and that company fell on hard times right around 2000. The year 2000 recession. It was an excellent. It was an e-learning company, um, was an online learning company, and I was laid off. And uh, when I remember, I I went home, and said to my wife, "Well, I guess we got to find. I've got to find something to do." And the next day, I got on the phone and started calling a lot of people that I knew in the industry. And sure enough, there were some friends of mine that were working at IDC that wanted somebody to do some research for them, and I volunteered to do that, and they paid me. Mm. And then I did some work for some software companies and. Little by little, um, learned how to do um, really sort of corporate, great corporate research in training at the time. It started in the training industry, which turns out to be a huge industry, and that evolved into talent and HR and leadership and all the all the business research that we do now. So that's how. It, luckily, I think laying being laid off for me was a good thing. Yeah, got me to do something different. And what drew you into research? Um. I think one of the biggest problems in the business world is the decisions we make about people. And even though there's a thousands and thousands of books and there's pundits and there's tools, people, um, business leaders still struggle who to hire, who to promote, how to manage teams, how to structure an organization, how to drive change, why, how to be more innovative. And what we found, what I found, is that one of the ways to answer that question is to not guess or talk to one company, but talk to a lot of companies. And in a sense, what we did is we actually pioneered the idea of crowdsourcing information. So when we do this research, what we do is we talk to and interview and survey thousands of companies on a topic, and we get all this information back, and then we, we literally correlate 
the information against different practices that companies are doing, and we find that companies that do A under these conditions have better results than companies do B under these conditions. And so that's really the core of what we do. And I found that to be fascinating because at the time we were doing it, very few organizations were doing that. So that's, and I, um, we found that there's a tremendous appetite for it because the domain of talent and HR and leadership and work is so um, difficult to, there are no right or wrong answers that data and information um, and examples are the answer. So, um, so I think we've you know, sort of developed a, a great business around that. And how did you evolve your um, process and principles for researching? Well, it started with simple surveys and interviews. And, and I, you know, having worked in business so long myself, I have a very practical mentality. And so rather than do research for academic purposes, if you read academic research, you'll see lots of data and statistical analysis about different things people do in, in business. But there's no practical application of it. So, so what? So we basically said we'd, we'd called our methodology what works because the core of it is to try to figure out through lots and lots of interviews and surveys what is working and what is not working and then why. And one of the methodologies that we, that we came up with was that <clears throat> no two companies are alike. And so GE can't cop copy what Google's doing and Google can't copy what IBM's doing and IBM can't copy what somebody else is doing. It's different. So we found that we had to take all of these different practices that companies were doing and break them into what we call maturity levels. So what we do is every time we study something, we get lots of ideas and information on how people are solving that problem. <coughs> and then we statistically break it into four levels. What beginners do, what advanced beginners do, what great companies do, and what really, really super excellent companies do. And, and, that, and that helps us organize all this information. And then um, how, do you, how do you understand the world today? And then, by, by the way, do you, do you ever feel like it would have been better to like, just do something more active rather than just consulting everyone? Because like, you know, at the end of the day, these companies that you're consulting, like you, you have like this plethora of companies. Right. Um, do you ever feel like, okay, maybe it would have been better just like to like apply all of these and then build my own Well, company? yeah, we, uh, you mean as a consulting business? Right. Well, you know, my, my career, the 30 years or so that I was working before I even got into this, I never was in a consulting business. I was always in a product business. So um, my natural inclination was to try to productize the information. So we're really basically an information company and we've tried to build information products that people can apply. The reason we got acquired by Deloitte is Deloitte has a gigantic consulting business that they wanted to find new ways to organize and improve the consulting they're doing. So our role in Deloitte is to use that information to help Deloitte consulting teams go out and solve problems. Because it turns out that the actual work of doing consulting and solving a problem is not the same as figuring out what to do. You have to figure out what to do, and then you have to figure out how to do it. And how to do it is just as complicated as what to do. <laughs> so we found that we, we were much better off on the first part of the problem. and that Helping companies understand what to do. Yeah, and we also do. The other thing that turned out that in our case is that we basically turned it edu into educators. So when people read our research, not only are they learning about best practices and what other companies are doing and various tools and techniques, but they're actually just getting smarter. They're just getting smarter about the domain and the problem so that they can oftentimes solve their own problems better. So I think one of the most exciting things for me 
in our business has been seeing so many companies who take our models and say, oh my God, that model helped me rethink the problem in a better way. And I'm fine with that. We don't need to sell them consulting. The rest of Deloitte will sell them consulting and we're, we're there to help them you know, educate themselves. <clears throat> and what part in consulting do you enjoy the most? To me, what the most thrilling to me is the face-to-face, -face, personal, sort of trusted advisor relationship that we have with companies where a senior business executive will oftentimes share a very, very complex, daunting problem that they are struggling with. Um, sometimes it's a life or death business problem that, that has a big impact on their business performance. And our ability to give them insights that they had, didn't have before and really help them solve that problem is just a tremendously gratifying experience. Um, they result in long-term relationships. Um, we learn a lot in the process. And we always make sure that we're adding value um, in, in any way that we can. And, and I just find that personal relationship is fantastic. In my particular case, I spend a lot of my time with HR professionals. HR people are collaborative. They're easy to work with, they're thankful, they appreciate the help, they oftentimes need the help, so it's been very personally gratifying as well. And how do you think about uh, building all these relationships? Well, you know, in my case, um, you know, I, I am very, you know, comfortable with technology, so I got involved in social media and, you know, LinkedIn and all that stuff and, and met many, many people over the years giving speeches and doing research and talking to people over the phone. And what I found is that you can have many, many relationships, some deep, some not, thanks to social media. Um, I am sort of a face-to-face -face person. Um, I don't like to you know, spend hours and hours on the phone <laughs> if yeah. I can avoid it. So I've developed you know, many, many relationships over the years that are really important. But I don't talk to people every day. I mean, I'll have a relationship with people on a business level. We'll work on something together, and then they'll call me six months or a year later and we'll rekindle the relationship and talk about something new, and that's great, and that, that's exactly the kind of relationship that works for me. And how do you assess the quality and the health of a relationship? Well, you know, there's in the, in the business world where I am, you know, sometimes people don't want the kind of help we have. There are some people that are very bright and very creative, and they want to figure it out on their own, and they don't want to hire a so-called expert or a so-called analyst, and um, they're happy to do it on their own. I usually can sniff that out early in a conversation and we realize that it isn't necessarily the right fit. Um, and sometimes those relationships just don't develop and sometimes they call back later. You know, and they say, you know what, we didn't really need your help a year ago, but now there's something I really want to talk to you about and I'm totally into that. That's fantastic when that happens. Um, and then how do you make sure that you really understand the problem uh, that you're trying to solve? Well, that's a good question. What I do and what we've tried to do in our business is we don't believe that people in HR stand alone. In fact, they only exist in the context of the business and the business strategy. So when somebody says to us, I have a leadership problem, I have a training problem, I have an engagement problem, or whatever it may be, we immediately say, okay, before we even talk about that, let's talk about your company, your market, your business, what are you trying to do? What is your company trying to do? What are some of the new products you're trying to introduce? What are the business strategies you're going through? Once we get through that, that's sometimes 15, 20 minutes, half an hour. Sometimes the HR people don't even think about that. Then we say, okay, now in the context of that, now what are the right people-related solutions that might make sense? 
because a high growth company that's growing like mad and has tons of opportunities is going to have one set of solutions. A company that's turning itself around, rebuilding itself, uh, is going to have another set of solutions. A company that's going through a merger is going to have another set of solutions. So there's many, many business-specific issues that, that prescribe what the right talent solution is going to be. So we start with that. And that usually gets us on a firm footing that whatever the recommendations or research that we um, use or propose to the client, it fits their situation so that if they do bring it forward and they do make a big investment in a new program, a new system, a new strategy, the rest of the business is willing to pay for it. See, one of the things that doesn't work in companies is for HR people to stand up and raise their head and say, hey, I have an idea. Let's do such and such. Let's have free lunch. Let's have unlimited vacation. The business guys are going to be like, well, why? <laughs> so, so there's always got to be a context. And how do you spur more action with the things that your people consult with? You, know, you, you give we, certain strategies. We, well, there's, there's a cultural aspect to that. The first is we are very, very hands-on with people. We, we call people back immediately. We spend time with them. We're not like an academic research organization that just sort of publishes stuff. So we, we talk to people on the phone and we spend time with them face-to-face. -face. In order to spur action, we try to encourage and give people both the tools and the relationships that we can check back with them on a regular basis and plot progress. And we give them, um, we try to convince them to set targets from the beginning as to what it is they're trying to solve and how are they going to measure their, their impact. So somebody doesn't just do something and cross their fingers that it's going to work and then move on to something else, but actually iterates on it and measures the impact of that. So, um, and, and most of the things that HR departments do don't stick the first time. They take time, they take change management, they take communication, they take training, they take iteration. Sometimes they don't work at all. And you need to be willing to live through that process and, and improve. So we, we really try to encourage companies to you know, stick with it and, and, we're, and we try to stick with them. And then one of the reasons we do that is our business model is a membership business model. So once they've become a member in our um, business, we talk to them as much as they need. So they, it's not Almost like, like a therapist. Yeah, we're, actually, we actually are, and that's a, that's a good analogy. I sometimes feel like I'm a psychiatrist. It seems a very labor-intensive uh, job, you know, all these phone calls, um, these meetings. It's, um, you know, we work pretty hard. I mean, it's a 50, 60, 70-hour-a-week life, but it's very gratifying, and we try to do as much of it electronically as we can. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have, you know, it, we allow to scale the business model doing this, but a lot of companies just read our stuff and they don't call. Sometimes they'll read it and they'll say, great, you guys taught me a lot, I got what I needed. Hmm. So, like, if you look at the law profession, um, you know, a lot of technology now is coming out that's sort of, like, um, making, making those jobs redundant. So how do you think about the consulting industry as a whole being potentially disruptive? It's absolutely the same things likely to happen. Um, the kinds of things that consultants do today have to continuously be moving up the value chain. So if, if I, I don't know, I wasn't in the consulting industry 20, 30 years ago, but a, a business person can go out on the internet, they can search for information, they can find an article like something that you wrote or somebody else, they can read a case study. They don't need consultants to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. They don't need consultants to give them broad education, unless they're really lazy and they just don't want to do that. Um, so consultants have to be smarter, more research-based, more savvy about technology trends, 
And in our particular case, one of the things we do is we're also an analyst firm. So we talk to three or four hundred technology providers every year. So we get a sense of who's really picking up speed and who's not. You can go to a conference like the one we're in today, and you can sit in a session, and you can watch somebody present some incredible technology, and you can walk away convinced that it's the best thing in the world. But, th but in fact, that company may be the, a laggard. There, there may be another competitor that's better than them. They may have just run out of money. You don't really know. So, so we, are, um, we believe that part of our value proposition is to giving people sort of an insurance policy that if they call us and they work with us, we'll keep them out of trouble. We'll keep them out of making a decision that, in retrospect, was really a big mistake. So that's part of our analyst business, keeping up with it. And if you had to name only one uh, value, what's the biggest value you're adding to, to, the, to the people that hire you? Um, I would say it's confidence and trust. We're giving them the data and the information and the uh, credibility that they can make a confident decision in something they need to do, and they can trust that we will be there behind them. And so our brand, which is well known in the HR domain, is about trust and research. And so our clients will use our materials and our brand and our models as a way to convince their skeptical executives that this is okay to do. And that puts a lot of responsibility on us. <clears throat> we, you know, and I, I make this point all the time to our research people, is when we produce a, a piece of research, a body of research, a model, whatever, we better be able to stand behind it. We better have inspected it very carefully. We better have tested it. We better have made sure that it's going to work because people are going to make many millions of dollars of decisions based on what we do. So we consider that to be you know, part of our responsibility. So, and if we do that well, and so far we have been able to do that well, then people will trust us. And do you have any habits in your own life that make you like, keep you effective? Yeah, I mean, I would say my... Um, one of my biggest uh, maybe personal traits and, and skills over the years is that I'm always learning. I'm always reading. I am always willing to challenge my own assumptions. Um, I go to conferences like this. I talk to people. I hear what they're saying. I realize that maybe some of the things we've been thinking are not true anymore. Things have changed. The, the nature of business is so dynamic that something that worked three years ago for a great company doesn't work today. It, it may even be obsolete. Um, a new technology could come along that could change the way somebody does something. So I think for me personally as an, a researcher and analyst, I have to be constantly listening and learning and talking to people. The second thing that I um, really try to focus on is communication. I've been asked to give a lot of speeches, I write a lot of articles, I do blogs, and I realize that I have to be clear, I have to be meaningful and I have to be actionable in what I do. So I spend a lot of time, literally hours and hours, working on PowerPoint slides and messages and stories and things about that, how I can communicate things clearly to people. Um, I've gotten better at it year over year. I think I've gotten better over the time. I think people like Laura know have watched me give speeches over the years. They've gotten better. But it's a never-ending process of learning how to communicate well and, and being you know, um, useful to people in your communications, not just making noise and trying to get eyeballs for the sake of, you know, social media. <clears throat> and now we've changed, like, sort of um, picking up in pace. Um, 
and you said business dynamics. Um, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed with all these uh, pieces that, I, that keep moving and all these variables? Well, you know, it's funny. I feel overwhelmed all the time. I mean, I am, the number of things going on in our domain is so vast, I can't possibly keep up with it all. So um, I, I, I just accept the fact, I'm, I, I just accept the fact that I have to be humble. I have to constantly learn and constantly be willing to rethink something that I may have believed or learned in the past. And I think that keeps me um, from being afraid, keeps, gives me the courage to keep, exp to keep exploring. I think business today, I think business success today, and I was somebody upstairs just mentioned this, one of the biggest characteristics of successful business people is they are courageous, and they're willing to challenge themselves, take risks, uh, sometimes say things or do things that are different, and I don't think it's any different in our case. If we're not willing to push the envelope and see what we may have said before that may not apply anymore, then we're going to be irrelevant too. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that keeps me from getting burned out on this. <laughs> Some point you talked about today was being overwhelmed and the fact that people are checking their cell phones like a Well, and then there's the, the issue that the general world of work is overwhelming based on tools. And I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good with technology and I know when to turn it off. Um, I, I, know, I know when to use it and when not to use it and I try to moderate my time. I'm also a bit of an introvert, so for me personally, I need quiet time, I need space alone, um, I need periods of time during the day, during the week, when I'm not on conference calls, when I'm not doing speeches, when I'm not doing webcasts, when I'm not in meetings, and I try to block that time out as much as possible. When I don't, I usually suffer as a result, and then the following week try to make up for it. And how do you plan your day? You know, my wife laughs about this all the time. I have a, an Outlook calendar that's overwhelmingly <laughs> booked up with stuff, and I get up early, and I... Um, you know, have a cup of coffee, and I just start. And my mind just organizes the time as I go. And what I've learned is that when I am ready to do something, I should do it. And when I'm not ready to do it, I shouldn't try to do it. In the case of research, writing, and I'm sure you find the same thing in your case, too, as a writer, sometimes you're trying to write something and it's not coming. Drop it. Wait. Do something else. It'll come back later. So there's periods of the day, periods of the week, periods of the year when certain things come and certain things don't. And I've learned that sometimes you can't push something that, that you're not ready to do. Now there's times when you have a deadline, you have a speech, you have an event, you have whatever it is, you have to get it done, and you just rise to the occasion. But I, I think generally learning your own cycles of innovation and creativity and when you feel like doing administrative things and when you feel like doing customer things and when you feel like doing management things and when you feel like doing creative things is healthy and I, and I think I've become relatively self-aware at those things. And what is the biggest non-technology hack in your life? Exercise. I, um, I am a, uh, a bit of a sort of a anxious person by nature and exercise, I can't think of better therapy and better productivity tool than exercise. I try to exercise as much as I can. Whenever I travel, I exercise. Um, my kids have gotten into exercise. My wife's gotten into exercise. And that can be going, like, I, I don't like to take the elevator. I like to take the stairs. Um, I'll go to the gym in the morning or after work if I have to. I'll go for a swim. I'll go for a bike ride. I'll get outdoors. Go for, I mean, there's so many ways you can get exercise besides really, you know, rigorous. Um, that, to me, is, has been, you know, a key to success at least for me. <clears throat> and how do you build a great team? 
Well, I think building a great team, what I've learned, and, and I think there's many, many people that have written many, many great books on this, is being clear on what your purpose is and really articulating clearly to yourself and to the team that you have, what are we trying to accomplish and why, and looking for people that can relate to that purpose um, and that really feel empowered and passionate about that purpose. That's number one. I mean, the best people we have hired are people that simply adore the work that we do, and they just love it because it's something they like. Number two is, <clears throat> frankly, hiring people that you enjoy spending time with. Uh, there's a lot of personal things that happen at work. You spend physical time together, you go out to dinner together, you go on trips together, you're in meetings together, and you, you need to look for people that get along. And um, some of that is just personal you know, style and, and relationships. So that's number two. And then the number three is I, I try to hire and have over the years tried to hire people who have some sense of <clears throat> personal passion or, or ambition that keeps them going. Um, our work is, we don't ship a product, so we don't ever finish. Our work is never done. It's not something like we're done. Let's Do you not it. miss that, like that you don't have a product that you sort of craft and build and then you Well, our, our research is a product. Every time we write a piece of research or an article, I, I look at it as a beautiful thing. So I actually, I, I actually look at our research and I read it and I say, wow, that's great. Um, but we need people that are constantly ambitious because the, the world that we live in is, is constantly changing. So I look for people with ambition. But, but ambition more for personal growth than not for career ambition. We, we're not a big company. We're not a big, I mean, Deloitte is, but our business unit is small. So somebody that wants to be the king of Burson isn't going to like it. There is, there is no king of Burson. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a relatively small group of people. But people that love their work and want to have personal um, brand recognition in the market and want to add value and want to become better and better and better at their own careers, those are the kinds of people we like to hire. And how do you make sure you grow and how do you track your progress? Personally or as a business? Personally. Um, through, the, through recognition, through business growth, through financial growth, uh, through the followership that I have. I mean, I, I, I've learned, actually one of the things I've learned at my time at Deloitte is the need to respect followership. And... Um, in the old days, you know, you told people what to do and they did what they were told. These days, people follow you. And if you're um, an inspirational leader, people will follow you. And so I, I try to assess myself based on that. I try to get people to give me feedback. That's not always easy. It's hard for people to give other people feedback. So, so that's, how do you, how do you uh, take in feedback and dissect it? You know, I don't know. I'm, I, I think you have to ask people like Laura. I, I'm relatively humble, I think. I believe I am, and open-minded. I grew up in a Jewish family where everybody yelled at each other all the time, and it was okay, and then we forgave each other at the end of the day, and it was fine. So I, I come from a culture of get it on the table, say what needs to be said, and move on. It's not personal. Um, so I thrive on that. It doesn't bother me <clears throat> when people get upset or say, you know, I, I think the way you did that or the behavior was not optimal. And I try to be open-minded about it. And earlier mentioned exercise helps you to like alleviate stress and anxiety. Uh, is there anything else that helps you to like be grounded and calm? Spending time with my family um, is a huge relaxation for me. 
um, reading anything, reading fiction, nonfiction, magazines, whatever is a huge relaxation for me, going outside, being outdoors. I live in California, so I have a lot of opportunity to be outdoors. The weather's nice here. Um, and, and I would say, you know, small periods of meditation, um, time to reflect, listen to music, the things that everybody needs every now and then to just kind of fill your soul. I, I need those just like everybody else. And earlier you mentioned purpose. Um, how, how would you, what would you tell uh, young people how to find their purpose? Well, I think, it's, I think there's no more important thing. Um, I have two kids in their 20s, so I talk to them about this all the time. I think the most important thing when you're young, in your 20s and your 30s, is to find what it is that you like to do that really gives you a sense of satisfaction and happiness. You might like numbers. You might like creativity and drawing and art. You might like working with people. Um, you might like building things. You might like um, tools. You might like playing games. Whatever, whatever it is that gets you off, that gets you in the zone, there's a career to be made around that. You might be an exercise person. You might be a sport, an athlete. All of the most successful people in every single domain are doing what they love, and by, almost by association, they're good at it. Most people are good at what they love, because if they love it, they're continuously improving and working on it. So, so I tell people to find out what you love. Now, the hard part about a career is that matching what you love against a bunch of jobs is actually a difficult process. And we were just talking about this in the session upstairs, is that the educational industry doesn't do a very good job of helping people match their passions with the employment community. And so I think, unfortunately, people oftentimes take jobs because they look good, they have great titles, they're with great companies, but those jobs don't necessarily embody the passion that they have. So I think most people, the way I advise people, is look at your career as a never-ending process of continuously improving and iterating on your work and what kind of work is going to be uh, the most enjoyable for you and, of course, and as a result, will be the most rewarding for your organization and the people that you're working for and with. So, so that's the way I look at it. Um, and, of course, get a decent education is important. Uh, read a lot. Uh, don't be afraid of technology. Basic stuff that I think most young people are comfortable with. Uh. So earlier you mentioned how uh, it was like how you transformed like a negative event when you were laid off and then you started this. Um, do you have some other example of when sort of you were stu where you felt stuck in life or yeah I think there's, I think I think there's there's a great s speech upstairs about abundance. I, I think one of the philosophies that I have and I would recommend people think about is. Um, Everything in life you can look at as either a win-lose or a win-win. And so I've had situations in the business world where we've had competition, we've had people that have quit and gone into business to compete with us, uh, we've had people sue us, we've had all sorts of sort of funny things happen. And I could have gotten upset about these things, I could have been negative about them, but what I realized is that the better way to deal with every kind of adversity is to say, you know what, learn from that and move on. And so, um, and I won't mention any political candidates, because <laughs> this is a topic in the political community, but, but moving on and thinking positively and creating a set of relationships in the world that are going to, to that forgive others 
is what I've learned to live by, and I recommend that to my kids and to the people that work for me. That gets back, I think it gets back to my family upbringing and the way I was raised and the type of family that I grew up in. I think if we forgive and assume that the world is abundant, we tend to have a better life, we tend to be more successful, and we certainly tend to be happier. So if you had to like uh, summarize yourself and your work in one word, what word would you use? Like, what, like a value you stand for, represent? Integrity is probably it. I, 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 I want to be a professional and I want our business to be respected for the um, validity and the integrity of what we do. We are a, um, in a sense, a, like you mentioned earlier, we're like a, sometimes we're like a psychiatrist to a business leader, we're a trusted advisor, uh, we're a research organization, And if people don't believe in the integrity of what we do, it has no value whatsoever. So um, we try not to pontificate. We try not to give a lot of opinions unless they're based in fact and data because we want people to trust and rely on the information we have. That means that it's hard to do. And maintaining integrity, obviously, is, is a constant process and it can always be sacrificed. But um, I would say integrity is hopefully the brand that I would stand for. And then one last question. If you could have dinner with anyone in history, who would you choose? <laughs> I would say, you know, in my reading of history, there's so many people. I, I would say the person that I'm the most fascinated with at the time you're asking this question is probably Abraham Lincoln. I mean, here's a man who had de clinical depression, faced the worst, perhaps the worst economic and political situation this country has ever been through. Um was physically ill in many cases, lived in a time when the world was actually a very hard place to live, and inspired millions of people to do incredible things. I, I can't imagine what he was like, but the opportunity to, to talk to somebody like that and have dinner with him would be an inspiration to me. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.